Lockdown Science. Hello and welcome to Lockdown Science on CAMFM with me, Ellie. And me, Andrew. This show is a light-hearted look at the science of the last couple of weeks, shifting the focus away from COVID and onto other science that might not have got so much press. But this week, we need to address the devastating events unfolding in the US. We like to keep this show lighthearted, but it would be wrong not to acknowledge it, because ultimately being able to choose whether to talk about it or deal with it in our daily lives or not is a huge privilege and one that we recognise. We'd like to start by saying that we stand in solidarity with the black community and are passionate about the Black Lives Matter movement. We realise that as much as people sometimes like to pretend that science is apolitical, it isn't. And black people in science, as in other sectors, suffer discrimination and erasure. Our voices and our takes on this should not be amplified here, but we're committed to amplifying the voices of black people in STEM, listening to them, educating ourselves and taking steps to help in any ways we can. There have been lots of resources posted on social media recently showing how you can help too, whether that's through donating to important causes, sharing content to raise awareness or signing petitions. At the end of every show, we share with you some things we found online or in the media that we think you'll enjoy. This week, we'll be amplifying some content from some seriously talented black scientists and naturalists, so do stay listening to hear that. And the important thing is that this isn't a one-week thing. Going forward, we'll make sure that we provide more balanced content. Science of the Week First up, we have our Science of the Week quiz, where I test Andrew on his knowledge of science that has hit the press in the last week or so. How are you feeling about it? Uh, I've had such a busy week, I'm not prepared at all. You haven't revised? No. Oh, OK, well, I'm not expecting great things. This could go horribly wrong. Let's go ahead. Number one. This week saw SpaceX's Crew Dragon launch from the NASA base in Florida. But what did the two-man crew decide to call their capsule? Oh, crikey. I thought this might be in the quiz, but I thought I might get something like, you know, how many years has it been since people have launched from the US? Or No, you know. um, no, that, that information is not going to help you here. I what, don't know. <laughs> what would you call it? Um, Bob? <laughs> <laughs> capsule, capsule face? OK, well, you know what? Sadly, they didn't go with that. They decided to call it Endeavour. Oh, OK. They said that this was to reflect the incredible endeavour that SpaceX and NASA took on in relaunching piloted spacecraft from the US. But also it had a personal meaning for them because they both had their first space flights in the shuttle Endeavour. Mm, OK. This was such an important launch because NASA retired its space shuttle programme in... Oh, do you know this, actually? I think it was nine years ago. In 2011... And since then, no astronauts have been launched from American soil until this week. It's instead been paying Russia to launch its astronauts on the Soyuz spacecraft. This is also the first time that a private company, SpaceX, has launched astronauts into orbit. The two astronauts were Bob Benkin. So your suggestion of Bob was not entirely off, except it would be a little bit... It'd be a bit weird to know the capsule after yourself. Exactly. And also Doug Hurley. And they are two of NASA's most experienced astronauts. They have both individually spent nearly a month in space during their careers. Wow. Yeah. And fun fact, they're also both married to astronauts. Mm. Which gets around the whole problem of, you know, you feel a bit bad for leaving your spouse and kids on the ground while you go into space, because I assume they just take it in turns. Number two, an alligator called Saturn has recently died at Moscow Zoo. He was one of the oldest alligators in the world and his life was surrounded by urban legends. How old was Saturn? 
Oh, okay. So reptiles can live quite a long time, and big reptiles are going to be particularly long lived. So I'm going to go with pushing a hundred. Not quite. You're a bit optimistic there. He was 83 or 84. His life is surrounded with controversy because it was believed that he once belonged to Adolf Hitler. But this has been widely accepted as just an urban legend. And probably the closest link between Saturn and Hitler is that Saturn used to live in Berlin Zoo and Hitler used to visit the zoo and apparently particularly like the alligators. But that's not Saturn's fault. Interestingly, what there is evidence for is that Saturn is quite the escape artist. During World War II, Berlin Zoo was destroyed during a bombing and most of the animals, including most of the alligators, were killed. But Saturn escaped and seemed to have spent the next three years roaming the city, after which he was found by British soldiers and sent to Moscow Zoo, where he lived until he died of old age. The Guinness World Records for the oldest living alligator actually goes to Muja from Belgrade Zoo, who is believed to be over 90 years old. So closer to your guess. Now, in the wild, do you know how long American alligators are expected to live for? Oh, it's probably going to be less than that, so mm. 60 years, maybe? Only 30 to 50 years. Oh, yeah, okay. so Saturn was an old boy. Mm. Imagine the stories he could have told you. Yeah, that's pretty intense, living through the bombings in Berlin. Exactly. I mean, unfortunately, alligators can't write autobiographies, but I would buy his. Number three, what UK meteorological record did this May break? It was the driest on record. Oh, so close. Hottest on record? Also quite close. What what else is there? It was the sunniest UK May on record. And this spring in general was the sunniest spring. The Met Office has revealed that the UK enjoyed 266 hours of sunshine in May, breaking the previous record of 265 hours in June 1957. I mean, we could have guessed that, right? Like, it was insanely beautiful this May. Yeah, it was really nice. But this is even weirder because it comes after the record for the wettest February. Professor Liz Bentley, chief executive of the Royal Meteorological Society, told the BBC that she's concerned by the extreme swings in weather systems in such a short space of time. And it's part of a pattern of experiencing increasingly extreme weather as the climate changes. So as lovely as this weather has been, it's also kind of scary. It's like when we had that ridiculously hot summer in 2018 and no one could decide whether to be like Woo, ice cream or oh no climate change yeah it's pretty weird and i know that from an ecological perspective a lot of stuff is happening really early this year which is probably because may was so nice that flowers are out early butterflies are out early birds are breeding early everything's kind of happening quite quickly but then the issue is Unless everything is matched in its timings, you get problems where food plants aren't out at the same time as the caterpillars that rely on them and loads of ecological issues. Yeah, exactly. Some species will lose out if they're mismatched with the resources they need. Number four, what is being switched back on this week after the longest shutdown in its stellar history? Ooh, I, Hubble? Uh, no, but you've got my little Stella pun there. Oh, that was a pun. Okay, I didn't even realise that was a pun. I thought it was just a clue. Well, it's kind of a clue and a pun because it is indeed something to do with the stars, but also stellar because it's very impressive. Okay. It's actually the Jodrell Bank Observatory in Cheshire. Uh, Yeah. That makes more sense because it's Earth-based. Exactly. It shut down its telescopes on the 17th of March as it reduced to a skeleton crew because of coronavirus. But this week, it started turning the telescopes back on. So far, they've started up the supercomputer at the heart of Jodrell and things are looking good apparently and its mark ii radio telescope has successfully rejoined the european network so the next phase of rebooting is to restart the e-merlin program which is a network of seven radio telescopes across the uk connected by a super fast optical fiber network with its headquarters at jodrell bank 
But what do you think of when you think of Dodgeball Bank? Well, pretty much telescopes, really. Observatory, cool space discoveries. Well, I was thinking, like, if I think of Dodgeball Bank in my head, I think of that one massive disc. Yeah. So that is the huge Lovell telescope, and it won't be restarted until probably the end of July because it's in the process of being resurfaced. Mm. Because even telescopes need a makeover from time to time. Well, there was that famous discovery, I think from Jodrell Bank, where they, they were picking up all of this noise in their telescopes, and it was this kind of faint background noise that they couldn't really work out what it was. They even went to the, to the extremes of blaming the local pigeons because they thought there were pigeons nesting and potentially defecating on the disc. So they cleaned the entire disc and the noise was still there and they couldn't work out what it was. And then eventually they realised that it was the background radiation from the Big Bang that you can still detect across the universe. See, that's amazing. But it shows how delicate these instruments are. Yeah, they had to go to the extreme of cleaning out pigeon poo to realise that it was actually a real effect they were detecting. Yeah. So yeah, Dodgerall is back on the system, or at least will be very soon. Number five. What geological phenomena didn't rumble New Zealand PM Jacinda Ardern during a live TV interview last week? Oh, that was an earthquake. Yes. This was a 5.6 magnitude earthquake. You've seen this clip, right? I have seen it, yeah. It's insane. She's answering questions live on New Zealand's AM show. And then the earthquake starts and she just looks kind of momentarily a little bit bothered and then just goes, we're having a bit of an earthquake here if you see things moving behind me. And then she just seems totally chilled and was happy to go on with the live interview. Is there anything this woman can't cope with? No, I mean, she's she's amazing. Like, her response to the coronavirus crisis was phenomenal. Generally, she just seems so kind of calm, collected, and really kind of thinks through problems as a leader. And I'm sure some people probably disagree with her on things, but, like, you know, she just comes across so well as a global leader and someone that we probably need more people like her in positions of power. Yeah, well, there we go. Even the earth shaking doesn't bother her that much. And I should say that luckily there were no reports of injuries from the earthquake in general. Well, at the end of today's quiz, what is your score? I'm not very happy with this. I I think I might have only got one out of five. I think you got one out of five. Oh. Yeah. You know what? Could do better. More revision needed next time. Yeah. Try to have less busy week. Journal Club. Next up, we're going to share with you a couple of our favourite papers. What have you got? Well, you know I love a good doggo. Yeah. So I love science about doggos too. And this week, I found something vaguely related to that. It seems that urban foxes are beginning to show the first physical signs of domestication. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. A study published this week in Proc B by Parsons et al. has compared skull morphology between urban and rural fox populations in and around London and found a number of differences between the two groups, which I thought was really cool. Actually, I really like this paper. Like, you know, in general, there's a lot of interesting science out there, but I really like the way that this was very clear and the discussion just linked really nicely to the results. So I'd recommend this as a read. So these authors looked at a load of different aspects of fox skulls from urban and rural environments to get a full picture of the 3D changes and they found that urban foxes have shortened wider snouts than their rural counterparts. The authors suggest that this could be adaptive, that is that the changes help the foxes live in an urban environment because shorter wider snouts have increased power but reduced closing speed. So this is good for accessing discarded food in urban environments that isn't going anywhere. You know, it's just sitting there in the road, it's not going to run away. But it may be harder to open this discarded food because, you know, it's in packaging. Whereas this wouldn't be good for rural foxes, which are chasing fast, soft prey like small rodents. 
These changes have also resulted in them having an overall smaller snout, which increases the nasal area, which may show they're relying more on their sense of smell for finding food rather than other senses. Mm. Yeah. So all actually, like all of this just makes sense. So as well as this... Interestingly, the urban foxes have smaller brain cases. Now, this was unexpected because the authors initially predicted that urban foxes would have developed larger brains to cope with the greater cognitive demands of living in a city environment, you know, because they'd have to exploit new food sources and, you know, things like that. But really interestingly, this reduction in brain size could reflect domestication syndrome. Mm. Do you know anything about domestication syndrome? Well, not really, no, only in the sense that it's presumably the process that dogs and cats and potentially livestock have undergone as well. Yeah, so it's, it's where an animal evolves traits that we more typically see in domesticated animals. So if we think about canids, for example, so that's, you know, the dog family, we would associate domestication syndrome with smaller brains, docile behaviour, some particular changes in skull morphology, ear floppiness, and uh, reductions in differences between the way that males and females look. And if you think about your typical domesticated dog, you can see all of these traits. And the changes in skull morphology in this study seem to hint towards the start of this domestication process. So it's really interesting for looking at how domestication might have evolved. Yeah, that's really cool because, yeah, I suppose back in the day when wolves were making the first steps to evolve to become domestic dogs, they were just wild animals living around us, not really interacting with us in anything like what resembles how dogs interact with us now but just sort of living around human settlements. Yeah. So that's really cool. And what's also interesting about this is they say in the paper that previous studies have found that urban foxes are showing reduced home ranges compared to rural foxes. So this could be a barrier to gene flow. So that's how you can see these adaptations happening more quickly because urban foxes are generally mating with urban foxes. Yeah. And you're not getting gene flow into the urban fox population from rural foxes because they're just not going that far. Yeah, and the other thing that's cool, I think, is that a while ago now, people started to notice and report behavioural differences between urban and rural fox populations. So urban foxes tend to be bolder and less wary of people. And so it's interesting that it's exactly how you predict evolution to begin to occur. The first thing that's that's most plastic is behaviour that can adapt, and then over time you start to see the morphological changes as well. Yeah, I find this super interesting. Anyway... What's your study of the week? Well, I've gone with type again and found something, I don't know, not necessarily less serious, but a bit more wacky. Mm-hmm. So this is what I like to refer to as a classic paper. It was published in the South African Journal of Wildlife Research in 1992, and it's entitled Reproduction in a Reintroduced Warthog Population in the Eastern Cape. So this paper tells us that in 1976 and 1977, 20 warthogs were reintroduced to a reserve in South Africa. And, over the following decade, the population was monitored for success. Sounds like some pretty good conservation effort and a consideration for the need for some evidence there. Obviously, counting the exact number of animals in an area is difficult, because you probably won't see every individual. So ecologists normally use a variety of sampling methods to estimate population sizes. Depending on the species, this may include walking transects, counting animals from a single point, or doing camera trapping or live trapping to monitor individuals. And for large species, you can also count them from the air, which has the benefit of covering a larger area. So between 1981 and 1990, seven aerial counts of warthogs were conducted by helicopter across the reserve to estimate the number of animals. There was some fluctuation, but in general an increase in numbers, with a peak of 641 animals recorded in 1987. Now, for most biologists, that would be a pretty good sign of success. Yeah, that sounds reasonable. Yeah, 20 animals released and a population of over 600 a decade later. Sounds good. That sounds great. 
Well, maybe. So the authors mention in this paper that studies elsewhere have shown that warthogs can be substantially undercounted from the air. So maybe there are quite a lot more than 641. Even better. Well, to find out, in 1989 and 1990, and I quote, data were collected from warthogs shot at random using a shotgun from a helicopter. What? Yeah. What? Um, Interesting strategy. Let's assess the success of our conservation reintroduction by shooting some of our study species. What? Yeah. So, of course, dead warthogs are easier to collect additional data from. So the authors recorded the sex and the age of the shot animals to assess the population structure. They also recorded the number and sex of the foetuses in pregnant females in order to estimate breeding rates. But they note that, and I quote again... At times, the large number of carcasses and the speed at which they were processed prevented the collection of data from all of them. What? Which begs the question, how many warthogs did they shoot? Yeah. Well, straight to the results, a total of 658 warthogs were shot. What? 658. But they only thought they had, what, 641? Yeah. What? And in in 15 months, they shot 658. That's some pretty ballsy conservation. That's just... uh, What? Yeah. I don't know what to say. (laughs) So, unsurprisingly, halfway through this proactive survey period, another aerial survey, minus the shotgun, counted only 361 warthogs. Yeah, because they're killing all the warthogs. Yeah. So what did they conclude from the dead warthogs? Well, the population is a bit female-biased. There were lots of young animals... And the fecundity was pretty high. So their reintroduced population of warthogs was successfully breeding a lot and the population was growing. Then they shot most of them. Now, I should put a little disclaimer in here that they do briefly mention that warthogs are prone to eruptive phases where the population increases quickly in favourable conditions and this can lead to detrimental effects on the habitat. And for this reason, the shooting was conducted as part of a population reduction programme to avoid habitat degradation. But nonetheless, the framing of the paper around the science of understanding population growth largely glosses over this fact. And so it's very easy for the reader to come away with the impression that they monitored the success of their conservation programme by killing most of the subjects. That's what I'm getting from this. Not an ideal framework for conservation science. OK, so what you're saying here is it's the framing that's the issue? Well... Sort of. I mean, I would argue that shooting as many warthogs as you think you've got in the population is probably not a f- <laughs> It's probably a bit of overkill. Yeah. In the very literal sense of the word, in terms of kind of population management for habitat protection. Could there also be problems here of bias in shooting, right? Because you're determining what the population looks like depending on who you shoot. Yeah. But is there a reason why female warthogs might be easier to shoot? I mean, so you get problems like that with some sort of environmental DNA methods whereby you might oversample males because males have larger ranges. Yeah. Is there an issue with that here? I guess there could be, yeah. They've, they've got a high proportion of juveniles and a high proportion of females and maybe they're for some reason more likely to be out in the open. I, I guess you probably naively assume that it would be more likely to be the other way around. Yeah, unless but... it's because juveniles and pregnant females are slower. Yeah. More likely to get shot. Yeah. Or or they're more likely to occupy open habitats for some reason because yeah. it's a bit easier to spot predators. I don't know. Yeah, it, it's a it's a bizarre strategy. I have some issues with this. Yeah. So when was this from? Uh, 1992. Okay, the that's... paper was published, but the, 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 the shooting was 1989 and 1990. I feel like that's not long enough ago for how many issues I have with no. it. No. <laughs> I'd like to see the ethics approval on that paper in the, these days. Yeah. Okay, so what are our take-home messages from this? 
Um, I I don't know. I I think. I I mean, so the really annoying thing is that there's no follow up. So we 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 don't know how the population did after that. Presumably it recovered and survived. And one of the points they make, actually, is that warthogs could be a valuable food source for people living in areas where they're found. Because they are so abundant, you can have a reasonable offtake without damaging the population. And they're also resistant to swine flu, which affects domestic Ah. pigs. So they're actually potentially a more stable food source if managed properly. Okay, so that's really interesting. Yeah, that that is interesting and potentially quite useful. And in terms of kind of, I mean... Pigs are not the most environmentally detrimental things to rear. But actually, in terms of environmental effects, if you can harvest wild populations of things that reproduce quickly, then actually that probably has less of an environmental impact than intensive farming, for example. So, OK, so I want to follow up both in terms of how this could be used nutritionally and also what has happened to the population. Yeah. Are there still any warthogs on this reserve? Yeah. <laughs> Isolation recommendations. We had so many great isolation recommendations for you this week. It was really hard to choose. But we're going to highlight Black Birders Week, which ran from the 31st of May to the 5th of June. This was organised by the Black AF in STEM Network, who are a group of black naturalists, scientists and scholars. And you can go on Twitter at Black AF in STEM and follow them. So some of the group of organisers are well-known names like Anna Gifty, Corinna Newsom and Jason Ward. Now, this week was organised in response to the racially motivated aggression from a white dog walker towards Birder and NYC Audubon board member Christian Cooper in New York's Central Park. The incident highlighted a number of societal issues, including how black people face racism and discrimination out in nature and how they're not represented in programmes to get people to engage with nature. Black Birders Week featured Q&As, panels and hashtags for black birders to get involved with and share their work. Although the events are now finished, the Birding Well Black panel discussion is still available on the National Audubon Society's Facebook page. And you can still check out the hashtags on Twitter and Instagram to see the content that was shared during the week. Some of those hashtags include hashtag Black Birders Week, hashtag Black in Nature and hashtag Black Women Who Bird. It gives you loads of ideas for cool naturalists to follow and loads of photos of awesome birds as well. Yeah, I, I'd just say it's been a... I've, I've really enjoyed seeing all of this stuff coming out this week because it's just... I mean, it's really interesting content and it's really fun. Fantastic photos. And, of course, it's a really important cause as well. Well, that's all we've got time for, but thanks for joining us today. If you want to send us your thoughts or recommendations for cool science we should look into ready for next week's show, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Andrew underscore Bladen. I'm at Eleanor underscore Bladen. And since I'm CamFM's head of publicity, you can also contact me via email at publicity at camfm.co.uk. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure you tune in in two weeks' time at 6.30pm for another episode of Lockdown Science on CamFM. (laughs) 